You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Hi, it's Julie. Thanks for tuning in to Served Up. Today, on November 1st, we are honoring Native American Heritage Month with a very special guest, Chalky Tom. She is a founder of Doom Tiki, an internationally recognized pop-up series that tackles the issues of appropriation in tiki subculture and fundraises for communities that are still dealing with the effects of colonization. Chalky is best known for her innovative cocktail building techniques, beautifully designed brand and event art, advocacy for indigenous and pacifica visibility within the spirits industry. Connecting her Pomo and Paiute heritage with her advocacy work, she brings a unique perspective to an industry lacking in Indigenous presence. Chalky has been featured in Punch, NBC News Magazine, The New York Times, and was recently featured as one of Imbibe 75 for her work. Chalky is currently working on a cocktail book, which upon publication will make her the first Indigenous American cocktail book author in American history. Look out for Chalky's ongoing collaboration with PDXCW, Native American Heritage Month, and two upcoming punch features. Now sit back, grab your favorite fall cocktail, and get inspired. Chucky, welcome to Served Up. Julie and I are truly excited and honored to have you on today's episode. Hi, how are you? Thank you for inviting me. I think you're all the way on the other side of the, the globe. Yeah, I'm in um, London now. So I relocated here almost a year ago to join my husband who's here. So that's been an interesting adventure. And it's definitely been interesting to, you know, there's um some interesting indigenous history here, but there's like a they're kind of behind in a lot of ways with awareness about stuff. So that's been interesting to be, you know, in Europe or in, in the UK and with the history of the US and how and like, you know, my people, it's sometimes it can be a little frustrating. Well, let's talk about that. Can you tell us, Chucky, about your, you know, how did you enter the beverage community? And can you tell us a little bit about your story and your journey? Sure. So my uh, family is Pomo, which is from California, and Walker River Paiute from Nevada. And um, that's on my dad's side. And he and my mom met in the late 70s, early 80s, because they were both very politically active. Um, my mom, I mean, my dad died 11 years ago. A lot of the work I do, I feel like kind of carrying on his legacy. And my mom, even though she's not indigenous, She's a bilingual educator and she still does, she's in her 70s and she still does a lot of community organizing and a lot of stuff with teachers unions and stuff like that. So my story kind of starts there. Um, I grew up in Los Angeles, which ha I'm not sure if it's New York or LA now, but has one of the largest urban indigenous populations in the country. Uh, long history there. 
complicated history there, um, especially coming from a California tribe and things like that. And my dad was quite active in the local native community. He was a powwow MC, which is kind of like the announcer and our, our powwows, which are get togethers. And especially in urban areas, it's a way for us to reconnect with our community. And a lot of the work he did was um, every year he would hold like a giant Christmas thing and we would do giveaways, which for us, if you're doing well, you invite people over and you gift them things to share with what you have, because there's definitely more of a collective mentality. So for Christmas every year, because like any other um, community that's been dealt its fair uh, share of rough history, you know, there's there's a need to make sure that everybody's taken care of. So that was just one of the um, one of the examples I had growing up. And then in a hospitality sense, we had a fry bread booth and fry bread is was made from government commodities and it's um, self-rising flour and you fry it and it's terrible for you. But, you know, most people have it and it's something that's a common dish. And the best way I, I like it is we make tacos out of it. My first foray into hospitality was wanting to work with my family when I was younger and as a sulky teenager, still being required to because I had a tendency to sometimes get into a little bit of trouble here or there because I was a cranky punk rock kid. But I think like a lot of that, too, especially um, uh, being attracted to kind of like that subculture definitely was a way for me to begin to understand why, you know, I was kind of angry and just kind of like a gradual awareness that, especially in California, where in fourth grade, you're required to do a mission model, which is pretty grim. I don't know if you guys know much about the mission system, but the uh, Spanish came over. They founded all of these missions and essentially enslaved all the indigenous people. And that's how we got the California wine industry, which isn't a happy story. So in fourth grade, you're required to make a model of it and do a whole report on it. And I would just remember at one point, just kind of feeling like really weird about the whole thing and then going to study one and realizing that, you know, there are there were wine production and then I was there was a mass grave of people like me on there. And I didn't understand why it was so important to do a report on something like this. And also at that time, I had a very problematic um, teacher from Ohio that just hated Native Americans, did not like us, had all of these weird stereotypes. And because my family made sure that we grew up with a lot of traditions and a lot of culture and things like that, you know, I knew who I was. I had a strong sense of identity. I was figuring out how to process that because it's a lifelong kind of journey. But I just remember her teaching things that were inaccurate and being sent to the principal's office constantly for being like, that's wrong. That's not actually okay. That's not how you use that. Sweat lodges are not clubhouses. Like, and, you know, just every single day as a nine-year-old, just being sent to the principal's office until my parents had enough of it. And we went to the school district and we had her entire course thrown out. And we made sure that nobody else would ever have access to these textbooks. And that kind of was a pivotal point for me where I realized that I could speak up and I could change things. And that's been kind of my momentum going forward. So when I was in college, I worked retail, I um, was around tattoo shops and decided at one point, a lot of it was because I hated driving, but I loved visiting a boyfriend that I had in New York that I was going to move there. And so when I did, I decided that dealing with the same people that go into tattoo shops and bars was about the same. 
I thought that they were very similar in the way that you would deal with all walks of life. And they were two of the same industries where even if you had all the money and were super famous, if you're a jerk, they can tell you to go away. So that seemed to suit me better than working retail or trying to wait tables, which I'm terrible at and I can't balance plates. And I'm better at talking and being charming than I am at being an efficient server. So that's just seemed like a natural course of things. And um, when I moved over to New York, I, um, you know, started bartending. I worked in all sorts of places all over Brooklyn, East Village, West Village, some restaurants, lots of dive bars that are no longer there anymore. And, you know, at that point, I kind of shied away from most cultural things. I think I was just kind of out being young and, you know, I had a good sense of it. Um, You know, my name has is obviously different. So I've never been really able to blend in that sense. And when I was younger, I resented that. And when I was older, I was think I was grateful that my parents thought ahead to this is part of who you are. This is part of your background. And then I would always get tired of people constantly being like, what does that mean? What's your spirit animal? And kind of applying this sort of whole like mystical thing, especially when I was bartending and getting questions like, well, should you be allowed to be a bartender? Aren't they worried about you being an alcoholic? And I was just like, what? That's not entirely accurate. And, you know, a lot of people did not know how to deal with me when they figured out what my background was. And even if I didn't want to be othered, a lot of times I was. So, you know, throughout my experience in hospitality, as much as I wanted to, you know, be just like everybody else, I never had that opportunity. And gradually I started shifting from working in dive bars and venues and things like that to more of sort of like a cocktail based thing. And I definitely started seeing like things that were kind of bothering me through, I guess, more of an indigenous perspective as an adult, I began to kind of realize, you know, more about what that was and understand why some things kind of made me feel different or weird or realizing that every single non quote unquote American um, hospitality venue was thematic and people were easily reduced down to drink and eat things that were not necessarily authentic, but where, but were expected. So if you go into a Mexican restaurant, you're going to expect certain things, even if they're not authentic, you're going to expect to see certain decor. Same thing with a lot of Indian restaurants, Chinese restaurants, especially. And there was always something about that that kind of bothered me, especially um, since on my mom's side, my grandfather, who's a Georgian and Russian, grew up in Harbin, China. So we had like on that side, we had a lot a lot of exposure to like cuisines. And we spent a lot of time traveling in Mexico because my mom has a Ph.D. in anthropology. So for me, having been to places that weren't necessarily accessible to, you know, outsiders and kind of getting a different perspective on food kind of like started playing into what I was doing with drinks. And I started kind of working on cocktails for menus and things like that. And instead of making things kind of stereotypical, I wanted there to be like sort of a, you know, we can make this margarita, but let's look into some of the traditional food things. Like let's combine some chilies. Let's um, let's do mole bitters and, you know, just kind of experimenting with that. My first few cocktails probably weren't the best, but they're actually pretty good. I've made a few of them over the years, but there was um, definitely a 
push for me to bring cultures forward in a way that was accessible, but also not disrespectful. And this is something we're going we're to come back to because I've reapproached it later on. But as I've worked in all these different types of places, whether they be French or other things, you know, I didn't want to just do everything that was standard at that time. And I've been bartending long enough that I remember what every food appetizer came in a martini glass. And there were a thousand terrible martini riffs and maybe two good ones. So the end of um, electric lemonades and woo-woos and stuff like that, and just the kind of beginning of that shift. So it it was kind of interesting because I always ended up working at a lot of different kinds of places. So as much as I thought it was great to make nice things, I also thought it was equally important to work somewhere where I could pour beers and shots and talk to people and it kind of created a really nice broad background, especially uh, since I ended up going into consultancy and stuff like that, being able to draw from different places and understand um, accessibility and to understand um, how to bring people together in a community sense, no matter what the background is, is always kind of something that stuck with me. And I kind of think a lot of that too came from, you know, just like my parents always having people over and working kind of collectively on things and Coming from a very kind of a collective culture that um, even when you do well, you find a way to give back. And I think that carries well. And I think a lot of kind of like that sense also is what's kept me in hospitalities because there's a few times where I've gone back and forth and it never sticks. So that's kind of like how I got my start. And then in um, three years ago, I switched over from doing just bartending to brands. and I um, worked with Thomas Henry from Berlin. And uh, my most recent ambassador position was with Ming River Baiju, which was another kind of fun thing. And I got to, and that's why I started revisiting more cultural things, especially with COVID and just the reaction and disrespect I saw to the Asian communities. I wanted to use, you know, my family's background of growing up in China and all these talented chefs and other people in the history that I knew and all the cool punk history with Chinese restaurants in California to like share this spirit in a way that was accessible, but also very American in the same sense where people don't realize how, um, how American things that they consider foreign are, which also is a common thing that comes up when people meet me as well, depending on how tan I am or what I'm wearing, people can't always place me. And that's always a little weird. And they're like, well, you look very different. Where are you from? Well, I'm from here. Well, here, no, I mean, like here, here. Oh, I'm like, no, my family's been in California since you, since before your ancestors knew it existed. Like, you know, just kind of fun conversations about that. And, you know, it's just one of those things where people don't think about like some American food standards being from African-American food history, or don't think about, you know, how, how much Chinese food has played a role in American history and just how different our Chinese food is from the rest of the world. Since I've been in London, I've come across quite a few expats that get very confused when they order the Chinese food here, not understanding that duck sauce is not universal. And um, same thing with like the whole like indigenous thing. People don't realize that where they live is indigenous land and they don't realize that a lot of the foods that we eat and take for granted that are all over the globe are indigenous. And they don't realize that even the places that they the places that they live are named after indigenous places as well. Unless it's like super obvious, like Milwaukee or something. 
Wow. I mean, I, and I know that that's, you know, just the, the tip of kind of your journey. And, and I appreciate you sharing that so much with us. I mean, we've really been looking forward to this day. And, um, you know, since the last we've spoke, you recommended uh, this fantastic history book to us and I've been reading it and, and Bridget has as well, um, which, you know, I want our listeners to know it's an indigenous people's history of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz. And I want to talk about this book a little bit. I am so thankful that you recommended it because we all recognize it as adults that we never really had the full history of the U.S., right? We got told an interpretation of it and it's been taught year after year. And I think everybody aware is aware of that, but not aware of the true history. And I feel like it's been so politicized the last couple of years and a lot of people talking about the, the critical race theory and whether kids should be learning that. And it just becomes this whole spectacle. And what I really appreciate about this book is that it doesn't involve politics. It's not about one side or the other. It's truly about facts and what happened, right? And my biggest takeaway is, is when the settlers came to this country, there was a very vibrant, thriving indigenous communities where there was trade, there was political nature already happening. You know, not everybody they, everybody had their own areas and their own communities, but they all figured out how to work with each other. And there was vibrant trade. But the interpretation that we get is that they came to this land and nobody was making anything of it. Right. And um, and I feel that that needs to be spoken about more. Tell us a little bit about, you know, what this book means to you and, and how it's helped you kind of pull all of this together. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with the history of residential schools. We've been dealing with that currently. Yeah. I had a bunch. America has a lot more. But there was this whole notion of, you know, save the man, kill the Indian. And part of the plan for genocide that, you know, that the Catholic Church had a big role in in Canada and also here, if you go by the missions and the U.S. government in general was to take children from their families and assimilate them and essentially take the Indian out. And horrible things happened in these places. Um, lots of, you know, it's the Catholic Church. I, I don't really need to, you know, paint a picture there. But, you know, there's there's a history there. And, you know, like, um, it's not just history, I think, is one of the biggest things that, you know, b- before I tie this into the story. But, you know, my grandparents met at one. And that's not that far removed. And when we lived in New Mexico... They had these schools, they were boarding schools and they were better educational opportunities because coming from California to New Mexico and being the child of a teacher, uh, going into the local schools in Española, um, I was a few years ahead. So the Santa Fe Indian School was a great opportunity. They had good computer equipment. They had some fun classes. But one of the most important classes I took there was an American history class from an indigenous perspective. And I knew a lot of the history and your elders tell you a lot of the history, but it was really cool to be in a class full of people that weren't necessarily, you know, from the same place as me, but they had a similar history and learning that and being able to be like, well, this is what really happened. And I I know my story really stuck with me. So uh, Roxanne is somebody that both of my parents know and You know, as a kid, we saw her speak a lot and went to different readings and things like that. So 
when her book came out, it was gifted to me. And I knew it was going to be a very hard read because reading um, actual history, your actual history is really when it's vicious and you're living in a country where you're essentially a refugee in your own land because for the country to thrive, your death is part of it is a lot to take in. And it was well-written, it was educational, and it was something that I could share with other people so I didn't have to be like, yeah, that really happened. Manifest Destiny was really fucked up and it wasn't okay and you should really stop glorifying it. And most of your holidays are terrible too. You know, like there was um, a reference there that was accessible and I could hold people accountable finally because that's like another thing too is... um, you know, a lot of people like to be willfully ignorant about this kind of stuff. And they tell me things like, well, you know, some of the stuff you post is so angry and, and it's terrifying and horrible and it's really upsetting. And I don't really think kids should be taught about what really happened at Thanksgiving. I'm just like, well, what about our kids that went through it? And what about the generations of people after that, you know, are traumatized and are still reeling from it? Like my grandmother. She doesn't talk a lot about what happened at the school, but I know that people ran away. I know that there were stories of, you know, um, babies from teachers and priests being thrown into the furnace and things like that. I know that um, one of her sisters was forcibly sterilized when she went in to give birth and she kind of lost her mind, you know, and my grandmother, I don't really deal with her at this point, but it made her into a very angry bitter, mean person. And that's how she had to survive. And I saw the effects that that would have on my father's family. And I saw the same thing in other people's families too. But my dad's generation in the 60s, they kind of turned things around. And there was like, you know, the American Indian movement, there was the occupation of Alcatraz. And there were things happening also, I'm from the West Coast, you know, so I know more about that. But there were things happening on the East Coast as well. And you know, even throughout this whole journey, the ta- terminology's changed because in the 60s, it was revolutionary to say that you're proud of being an American Indian. And that's why you had the American Indian movement. And then later on, around like the 80s, when I was a kid, it was Native American. You know, Canada has First Nations and now it's indigenous. But, you know, as we've come into our own and as technology has really aided us in bringing our community together, you know, there's been sort of like a whole shift in everything else. So being able to also have a book like this to refer people back to instead of having to become the de facto question and monolith for your whole culture is one of the reasons I really value it. But also, you know, there's a kid's version, which starts about junior high age. And I, I think that it should be a required text in every book and with everything that's happening in America. And part of the reason that I'm in no hurry to come back, you know, a lot of the textbooks are now purposely erasing our history, being made inaccurate. You know, um, Trail of Tears was not a long walk. Manifest Destiny was not good. We didn't willingly move out of the way. And, you know, I don't know. They always talk about how, like, we're savages and cannibals and all these things. But everybody I've read about in history doing that kind of stuff in America, like Jamestown and the Donner Party, they weren't indigenous. So I think it's important that this information is out there and that there's an interest in it and people actually care to read it now. They'll still get mad at me for correcting them, but at least now I can point them somewhere and they can find it if they're ready to take that step. You know, I personally took that step when you assigned it to us, when you recommended it to us. And you're right. It's not an easy read. I don't have anything that can be even remotely relatable to what I read in that book. 
but I see the importance of it. I feel the importance of it. I agree with you a thousand percent, Chucky. You know, I have a daughter that's about to graduate high school and it's incredible to me. She's been in their school systems now for what, for 12 years. She hasn't been told anything that I read over the past week and a half. Not one bit of it has my kid been told in her schools. You can bet that she now has a copy in her bedroom (laughs) and we're going to be talking about it as a family. And I think more that has to happen. Communication is everything, you know, to break down that falsehood. It's disgusting. And when you know the truth and the only way that we can make sure that this doesn't happen again and can get better is by understanding the past and all of its transparency, right? I think transparency is good in history. And I think transparency Mm -hmm. is good when it comes to spirits as well. So, you know, I'm really, really into the whole transparency thing. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I would like to ask you, um, you know, one of the things that we talked about on our pre-chat for served up was, and I believe that you also addressed it during your tales of the cocktail workshop. And that was just the the truly falsehood and the lie that, you know, if you are an indigenous person, you just, you can't handle spirits. You can't handle wine. And I know that you had had data behind that and um, had really proven that that's just not true. It's not the case. There's a great study. Um, I can send you guys a link to it that was done by the uh, University of Arizona that found that indigenous people were less likely to drink in general. And that we're just as likely to binge drink the same way as white drinkers were. But part of that is eugenics. And part of that is also showing that we're inferior to Europeans and, you know, unable to handle things and stuff like that. And, you know, it's another way of othering us and making us less than, which makes it easier. I mean, there are some issues with addiction, but a lot of that comes from going through some shit. You know, and I think one of the other things that's important is even though we do have Indian health services, if you're dealing with a substance addiction problem and you can't get the same, you know, um, help that you could get if you lived in a city, were wealthier, had insurance and all these other things, the outcome isn't going to be the same. So, you know, that's that's just part of it. And the other thing, too, is there's a lot of there's some work to do destigmatization. I can't say this word. You know what I'm saying? So there's a lot of work to kind of take away, separate the whole like traumatic history because, you know, there are stories of treaties being signed after people were given things to drink, you know, so it's not necessarily always a happy history, but also there's so many different nations that aside from all that traumatizing and bad stuff, there are people that had ceremonial drinks and beers and things like that. And You know, Roxanne that was on my panel discussed this. Also on top of that, um, especially with the whole like, you know, they don't know how to handle this. One of the craziest things I found out when I moved to England is that entire English society, especially in London, was almost completely destroyed by gin. And I was just like, well, how come nobody calls this out? How come being a functional alcoholic, if you have a, a charming accent or from a colonizer country, you know, you're not looked at it in the same lens. And, you know, a lot of it is just straight up racism. That's so true. I mean, people were being paid in gin for a good while. And yes, and, and talk about a hot mess. I mean, with gin, oh my God. 
And that is something that we need to talk more about because I don't know that I've heard of that comparison before, but it's so true. It's so very true. You know, an overindulgence of alcohol impacts everybody, right? I mean, it's, I think alcohol sees no skin color, no culture and can be really harmful for anybody if you abuse it. And the fact that certain people are targeted as they can't handle it is just absolutely absurd. I mean, it's the same with with the Asian community as well. Like, oh, they can't drink or they're not this. And um, I think it's a way to, as you said, Chalky, to other them, right? I, I love that terminology and, and like, oh, you're different. You can't handle the things that we can. And, um, and it's not right. And we need to speak up about it. You know, I think today, and, and I know it's long overdue, um, but it is a special day in the U.S. as it's now been recognized as Indigenous People Day of October 11th. What does that mean to you? And how, how do you feel about that? Well, I think it's good that they're acknowledging it and we're stepping away from Columbus Day. To be completely honest, there's never been a good president if you're Indigenous in the United States. And this is great, but it's also really performative because there's a lot more things that should be being done for us. So that's great. That's wonderful to do that, but maybe help us with environmental issues. Maybe stop trying to put pipelines through all of our land that could potentially poison people. Maybe look into all the um, missing and murdered indigenous people that no one cares about and, you know, are also othered and terrible things are said about them to excuse overlooking it. Maybe uh, look into correcting the educational system and making sure our history is right or freeing the water protectors that are protecting your own land in a way if you were in a or if you were in a state where you could have a gun to protect your property, nobody would think twice about it if you were of a certain background. So it's good that they're doing this, but if they're if there's no follow through on actually doing right by our community, it doesn't really mean a lot. And then the other thing, too, is like even the whole history of Columbus Day was essentially um, the Knights of Columbus that were an Irish American organization and Italian Americans, you know, having this holiday made them white. You know, it stopped, you know, them being treated like, you know, people of color. So I don't understand why, you know, if somebody like Columbus is the best you can do why you wouldn't want somebody better. Cause even in his own time, I don't know, he's a child sex trafficker that brought syphilis everywhere that was lost, that had no idea what he was doing and who is very vicious and punished for his treatment of, you know, the Taino that have been almost completely wiped out culturally. So there's like a weird balance between that because as many times as I will like post some cool, like memes that somebody, my community is making about it. I'll get somebody's like really angry Italian brother telling me I'm horrible and how dare the Indian savages steal Columbus Day away from him. And I'm just like, you can't steal anything from Columbus. I mean, that's kind of his whole MO. So, you know, it's a good uh, step forward, but there's still going to be those problematic people that don't understand that it's not taking away from something. And there are better heroes to have. There are better heroes to have, no doubt. Can you talk a bit about, you know, just staying within the the spirit world that the three of us are in? Can you talk a bit about some indigenous um, 
spirit companies that you recently found and some of their background and maybe how we can find them. When I did my panel for Tales, which was the first Indigenous panel in history, which I thought was a long time coming, especially if it's an Indigenous land. I mean, I'm glad we're at this point, but I just am surprised no one thought of it before. But um, we had Shyla from Bow and Arrow. We had Roxanne. She was uh, from Sonoma Distilling. And then we had Tara, who's from Kitten Wines and Kamen's Two Dreams. And then also on top of that, um, there's Copper Crow Distilling, Twisted Cedar, who I'm very happy to find because they're also Paiute, you know, that always makes me super excited. Seven Clans Brewing and Skydance Brewing. So that's the list I've been, I've been working on. And, and I would like to, you know, encourage people to look up these brands. And maybe if you insist on celebrating Thanksgiving, support some indigenous brands, start a wine club, you know, for indigenous people's month with brands from these places, make an, make a um, effort to seek them out, you know, instead of reposting all the memes I'm posting, go support them, you know. It is so important during this time, right? As we get into fall and the holidays, I think there couldn't be a better time for us to just really start peeling back the onion. And and to your point, you know, having this book that you can reference so that you don't have to relive historical facts and debate it and, and put it out there, but that now you can reference this incredible book that I'm just fascinated with. It's it is so important. And, you know, as my son was doing his homework and and I could hear him, you know, asking a question to my husband and I knew it had something to do with, you know, the I heard the Mayflower and I was immediately like, wait, stop. What are you learning? That's not true. That's not real. You know, so I definitely want um, the kids version. What is that called? Because I was going to have him read this one with me and he's 10 and he can handle it. Indigenous people's history of the United States for young people. OK, yeah. perfect. Yeah. I, I think that's fantastic. And if I can do anything, it's it's teach my child, you know, and, and my family and the people closest. And and I know that um, we're all committed to doing that, you know, but I think during this time of the year and I know I'm going to take it with me to heart is as I celebrate Thanksgiving as a family, I've always celebrated more of just like enjoying time with our family and and really thinking about what we're thankful for. And it's never been this whole facade of the pilgrims and all of this, because we all knew it was BS from, you know, way back then. I didn't know the details and I'm so thankful I do now. I think it is important to really talk about our land, the land that we live on, right? This land that was supposed to be the free land, but it was actually shared land amongst people. You know, the fact that I learned that real estate actually was a result of stealing land from the indigenous people, right? The indigenous people never claimed ownership to land. It was about using the land and respecting the land, but not like I own this land, you own that land. And that kind of came as a result of the settlers. So there's just so much that I'm taking in. What is this time of the year for you? And and do you feel that, you know, and I know we're way behind. I mean, this should have happened hundreds of years ago of us having these conversations and, and really digging into history. I feel like it is happening now with just the social injustice uprise that's happened over the last year and a half. What does this time of the year feel like for you? Fall isn't fun. We have Columbus Day. We have um, Halloween, which 
I have a couple stories about that, which is never fun because inevitably somebody thinks it's okay to dress up like an Indian princess or in an overly sexualized costume. And these stereotypes objectify our women and, you know, just terrible things. And then always the whole like Thanksgiving thing. And, you know, this year I'm happy that I've been given some opportunities for November with um, punch and Portland Cocktail Week to work on changing the conversation, because I can tell you that working uh, at a bar that has a fall program inevitably means that there's going to be some stupid Thanksgiving themed cocktail, a hundred articles about some pumpkin flip and maybe something, you know, about pilgrims, you know, and that's boring and tired. And, you know, most of the foods that you're eating on Thanksgiving, you wouldn't be eating unless we rescued everyone. So. I mean, I wish there was more interest in that kind of stuff. And, you know, there has been a great indigenous food movement, which is a parallel industry to ours. So there was some interest in that. But when I worked at a bar, I would always work Thanksgiving Eve and I would always play Adam's Family Values because it has one of my favorite scenes of all time. And when I was a kid, I was like, this is awesome. She's kind of creepy and weird. And she's burning down the pilgrim village. This is the best thing I've ever seen. So every year that I used to bartend, that's what we would do. And I would fundraise for a different indigenous organization, you know, and it's important too, if you want to like find these organizations, make sure that they're led by indigenous people. Finding local ones is good because it's good to take care of your neighbors. Taking like something that's really negative and terrible, which is essentially a celebration of a massacre of us and making it into this wholesome thing is just doesn't, it's super gaslighty and it's super not cool. And on top of that, like, I don't know. I, I think I want more than, I don't know. I don't even like Turkey, you know, and popcorn came from Thanksgiving and all sorts of other cool stuff. So, you know, looking into all of that stuff, celebrating by supporting indigenous brands, looking more into the foods and doing your cocktails based on that stuff is a lot cooler than just whatever, variation on the same thing that you've been doing for the last 10 years and cocktail trends over and over and over again. Also like being respectful about naming things. I don't know. I've come across, um, especially in our industry, I've come across like some really crazy stuff. Like everybody knows that there was the um, crazy horse, malt li- sorry, crazy horse malt liquor story where they finally settled with the tribe. They changed the name. And I believe the settlement involved horses and blankets at one point too. So that's kind of cool. And then one of the weirdest things that happened, especially working for a European-based tonic brand, a few years ago, there was a brand in Belgium, it still exists, called Apache Gin. And um, it was one of the most appropriative, horrifying, disrespectful campaigns I'd seen in a while. And um, it featured these guys that were European, that spent some time in Arizona, that apparently hung out with some indigenous folks somewhere and decided that they were going to come home and make a gin and call it Apache with the uh, botanicals from the plains, two very different areas, different types of nations live in both. And, you know, uh, Mariah Kunkel from the Pacifica project, she forwarded it to me. And at the time working for a European brand, I didn't think that I could say anything publicly. So I was, I worked kind of behind the scenes to make sure that there was an article done about it. And, you know, after that, I was just like, I don't want to feel like I'm ever in a position within my industry where I worry about my job or my reputation at the expense of 
who I am and my community and speaking up when something's wrong. So with that kind of stuff, you know, that's one of the most common things that I'll run into, or, you know, there's a book that's super historically act like important in so many ways, but there's a cocktail that's called the medicine woman in it. And we don't mix drinking with a lot of our spiritual practices for the most part. And, you know, or for the people that I'm from, you know, and the fact that that would be overlooked and not considered, you know, like you wouldn't name something, something offensive and you wouldn't have a cocktail campaign with blackface. Why would you take something from us like that? And, you know, you can be progressive, you can be another person of color and you can still harm from others as well, you know, or just other things that I come across are like, um, find your spirit animal, like find a different advertising campaign. It's done. You can Google it. I've done a a thing on it, but there's hundreds more great articles about it. You know, it's just not something that you should be doing as a brand anymore. It's old, it's tired, it's boring, and it's disrespectful. And, you know, one of the weirdest things that happened when I moved here is there was a fundraiser for animal rights called Find Your Spirit Animal. And I spent hours educating the person that put it together. And he just felt like he was being harassed. And, you know, other indigenous women from Canada, who I'm now friends with because of this, reached out. And there was a gaslighty, like, you know, apology eventually, but He kept saying, well, I went to the British Spiritualist Society. So one of the other things that I want to kind of add in all this is you can't go to the wrong people to get permission. And if you if it's something that you need to ask permission about, you should be asking yourself, if I name a cocktail, this is this a good idea? Probably not. If it's something spiritual, if it's something sacred, even if it's one of our words, it's kind of hard because one of the things that was done at these schools, and this has been very true with a lot of the work that I've done with all the tiki things. Like, especially with like Hawaiian words, we weren't allowed to speak our language. We were, as children in the schools, beaten for that, as adults, killed for that. So, you know, being more thoughtful about stuff like that, or just even having consideration of Indigenous people that exist. You know, there's not a lot of us in our industry. So I've been doing this for about 20 years, and it's been really only in the last three that I've really connected with other Indigenous bartenders through the pop-up that I've been doing. So, you know find us. We're everywhere, you know, have conversations with us. And just as you wouldn't do something in blackface, don't, don't do something in red face, you know, don't do something with the, um, with the headdresses and, you know, self-care is important, but if your self-care pack includes like sage is something that's been sent out or an event that I went out where Palo Santo and sage were burned as incense. Like these are our medicines and they're not supposed to be commodified and it's a closed practice. There is smoke cleansing in other cultures, and it'd be awesome if you took the time to learn about your own instead of taking from ours and, you know, just kind of not listening to us when we say, well, that's not really cool for you to do that. Like self-care is important, but if it's at the expense of our history, how caring are you actually being? So, you know, just trying to create this awareness has been a lot of the work that I've been doing, even just creating like the infographics I do. Some of it is for therapy. Because I come across things where I can't really go off about it, but I can eloquently put it to pictures to help people understand. And some of it also is just to have the resources out there for accountability. I know it's it's tiring, right? And I know that I mean, especially as as you've worked on this, you know, I mean, since fourth grade, advocating and standing up and 
and speaking up and, and all these years and, and the fact that you're carrying out your father's legacy, I think is just incredible. I mean, I, I can imagine, you know, how he feels about that and, and how proud he is of you. And, you know, I know it's tiring. I mean, that's something I I can relate with you. Like even just over the last two years, I've become a lot more vocal and open when I see and hear things that are wrong that I never did before. Cause I was worried about, okay, just keep your head down, like get by, you don't want to get fired. You know, you're on a good roll. You don't want people to think differently of you or think that you're a troublemaker. And, you know, so I used to have all those thoughts and now it's just, it's, if we don't, then who will? The only thing I want to say is that we, I am personally so thankful for you to be so bold and, and really, you know, regardless of the comments you're going to get back and, and the people that are going to say, no, you're wrong. I'm right. The fact that you keep moving forward and educating everybody and all of us um, is, is really what's going to cause the change. Because if you don't, you know, who will? I kind of see it as not necessarily a duty, but I just see it as being part of my community. Because one of the things that I've learned, especially as I've connected with more of us, is a lot of us feel alone. And we didn't know that these opportunities that we're like the first to do were there at all. As much as it's important to do this stuff on my own, the most important part of everything I do is creating other opportunities and creating more visibility and, you know, bringing more people in so they don't have to deal with the same stupid stuff that I did. So it's easier for them. So, you know, at some point, maybe we can all have our own conference just as other communities have done. Maybe, you know, um, there will be like apprenticeships that might not have been thought of before. And I don't know, maybe our own collaborations, but we always end up collaborating. It doesn't matter. Like, I think that's just like, if you're in the same industry and you're indigenous, you find a way to work together because there's not a lot of you. And, you know, we're pretty cool with each other. There's, you know, because there's not a lot of us. So that's been pretty cool. And then one of the other things that I really love about my community is every single person that I talk to that brings in, you know, profit from whatever they're into, we always find a way to give back to our people, whether it's hand sanitizer whether it's um, providing like grants and other things or, you know, what, what I do with my pop-up, um, Doom Tiki, which we're actually changing the name in January. We've been working on it for the last few months because we've realized that we've attracted the right people to the conversation that are going to work for change and the people that don't want to be part of it. We don't need to attract to the conversation. But, you know, for me, putting together, especially seeing the parallel issues with um, the cultural appropriation and commodification of Pacifica culture and Asian culture in this, uh, I guess it's a subculture. I don't know. I kind of call it colonizer, you know, cosplay, but take what with it you will. But seeing just some of the same parallels, especially with the same arguments with you shouldn't be so sensitive or if we have a mascot, it's because we're honoring you. Taking all of these things and seeing these parallels, especially uh, when I would come across these bars that were named things that were like pagan or savage or, you know, that that othering language or even like tribe, which is like a it's a colonizer terminology that we had to agree to in order to get benefits to live in our own stolen land. So, you know, just even coming across that stuff and people like using that as marketing campaigns, I'm just like, that's a terrible history. You're a bunch of yoga moms. You sell rosé. You're not a tribe. Come up with something better, you know? So even coming across all of that, like that pushed me to create 
what I refer to as a decolonial, immersive and subversive uh, cocktail experience. And we like to say that we fundraise for uh, various communities that have been affected by, you know, colonization. So we work with Pacifica groups. We work with Aboriginal groups. We've worked with Maori. We've worked with um, even the uh, bar that my husband's been at forever here when they had a flood, you know, they're black owned. And we're just like, we want to support other communities that need things coming in and, you know, put things in the positive. And also for us, like we kind of took the whole, like we went with the whole like metal thing because metal is huge and, and punk rock is huge in the indigenous communities. Like we love our rock and roll. And a lot of times that disappoints people when they meet me and I have colored hair and tattoos and I want to talk to them about like going to see like Mama Lord and don't want to talk to them about the great spirit or whatever they think I'm supposed to talk to them about. Like, so kind of having that soundtrack and then going with a completely satanic theme as a pushback to what the Catholic church has done and kind of making people rethink about, you know, religion and how they don't devalue others by showing them shocking images has kind of been working. So you know, that's been like the biggest thing that I've kind of done with all that. And through this pop-up, I've worked with the most diverse bar staff I could ever want to put together through Infusion and other indigenous bartenders, the most important part. So it's been like a really incredible journey. You know, we're still doing a pop-ups in London. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're doing one at Lost Boys Pizza here. I don't know if I can mention that, mm-hmm. but um, they're a Lost Boys vampire satanic pizza place with black crust pizza with um, pentagram on the pizzas. And it's going to be a lot of fun, but we're still doing it for the uh, Native American Rights Fund because they help with bail money and they help with like um, a lot of issues going on with non-Natives trying to adopt their children and things like that. And all those laws that are protecting us that can, it's a, it's a whole mess, but you should definitely look into those laws and why oil companies are investing in turn, overturning those rights in order to overturn our land holdings. It's, it's a whole mess, but take the time to learn about it. And continuing to do this and then talking to people in other parts of the world that are just kind of like, oh yeah, well, if you come here, you know, my friend that's in New Zealand, she's like, come here, you can work with our bartenders because they have some of the same issues that you guys run into, you know, and we like what you're doing. And, you know, our community is also part of this whole like tiki mess and a lot of people that think that we're inferior. And when I speak to people in Australia, they're like, yeah, some of the stuff you've taken, we want to know how we can, you know, have these discussions about Australia Day. So it's kind of been great because I've been con- I've been able to connect with other indigenous communities around the world that are dealing with the same things. And, you know, especially like I see parallels too with like tequila and mezcal in um, Mexico. You know, there's a there's a there's a deeper connection with the spirits there and a deeper history that goes back, you know, before. And there's all these like cultural things that people come in and pick and choose and they don't really benefit the community and they don't really think about the long-term effects. And, you know, Oaxaca today compared to when I was there in the eighties is like going into a, um, one of those self-sustaining resorts for Americans that are afraid of Mexico. It's, it's really bizarre. Yeah. It's like Disney world. It's a lot different. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely has evolved. Uh, can you talk to us before we close? Would love to know what's next for you, Chucky. I know you just mentioned, mentioned, you know, kind of reformatting or rebranding, you know, your, your pop-up, but what are your hopes, let's say for yourself for the next, let's say five years? 
I can't quite think five years ahead because the la- it's impossible in this current time of a, in this current timeline we're all in. But, you know, I want to see what I can do being in Europe, especially since um, I've been doing a lot of consulting work with moving on from problematic marketing and cultural appropriation. I've been working with some bars that were more tiki oriented that are now looking to be more tropical or as I like to call it, thoughtful tropical. Um, we're working on our book which will tell the story of why Dube Tiki started and then how we switched from that to Thoughtful Tropical. And then also um, really working on like doing things about cultural empowerment because we all understand appropriation, appreciation, and to a small degree exchange. And a lot of them get you know convoluted, but it's part of that realization I had about not saying authentic, you know, because that's also weird and othering and makes people's cultures into like a tourism thing. But Working with people from different communities that are often stereotyped or reduced down to certain things and taking different bartenders and being like, take these ingredients, tell us a story, because that's the best thing about immersive cocktail experiences is the storytelling. And every culture has their stories they tell. So, you know, we've worked with bartenders from Indian backgrounds. I worked with um, Nicole Morris, who has... um, Another indigenous bartender that, you know, we did our, I did a, we did an indigenous doom tiki together and it was a lot of fun. And, you know, it was awesome. It was probably one of my favorite ones just because after a while I was like hanging out with family and we've worked with Scandinavian bartenders. Um, I've talked to like people from other cultures and things like that. You know, we want to work on a, a Japanese doom metal one with a couple other bartenders we know. I want to take um, all of these cultural elements that are usually reduced for American consumption and share them in a way that empowers the storyteller, not the people that take from it and try to profit from it. So it's like the reverse of Tiki, I guess, in that sense, instead of, you know, going and be like, I'm going to take this Caribbean rum and then I'm going to take these South Asian ingredients and we're going to stick it in the Pacifica mug. And then maybe we'll do something that's, you know, made out of candy syrup and we'll set it on fire. And this is a new culture. Instead of doing that, I want to explore each facet of that and have them share their stories instead of, you know, talking about a vicious version or a missionary's downfall, which are terrible names and you should stop using them for drinks, you know. So I want to see some of that happening. And I hope with my book that it will, you know, I'm working on it with Austin Hartman, who's my partner from Doom Tiki. So we've had like a few readjustments and and, and like kind of visual things and then I've been also doing a lot of work with making cocktails inspired by indigenous ingredients because, you know, corn's amazing and people don't give it enough credit or love and bourbon should be getting a lot more love because of it and, you know, other corn based things. But you know, just kind of doing things like that is where I'm at. And, you know, my hope for the future is that I won't be the only person having these conversations, that I'll be listening to younger people doing it, that I'll be meeting more bartenders that are indigenous that are going to do incredible things that I haven't even thought about. Like I'm so inspired by the people that are 20 years younger than me now that I'm getting into like anti-territory, like the kids that are doing like the cool indigenous punk bands that I didn't have enough of, or really awesome art that I love buying and wearing them. Like I was not ballsy enough to do this when I was 16, but you are, and I'm going to buy everything you make, you know, stuff like that is like, what makes me excited. But um, in the immediate future, I have something, some collaborations with Punch in Portland Cocktail Week. And I'm going to be continuing my pop-up here. And then at some point, I'm going to do a, um, when it's, when I feel a little safer about it, I'll be doing some stops in America. 
And then if everything goes right, I'll be bringing some indigenous bartenders with me to Europe. And we're going to do a, uh, we've been calling it, well, Nicola and I have been calling it war party of two, and we're just going to go all over Europe. So people can actually stop painting us in the history as America does, but they do 10 times worse here. You know, so that's, those are just like the things that we're working on. Wow. You've got a lot going on and I just think it's so wonderful. I mean, we are, we're honored to have you on today and, um, we're, we're happy that tales finally, you know, had an indigenous panel, um, even though it's the first one and that we got to meet you and, and find you because that was uh, really important for us to really explore the indigenous people's community as we use this podcast to really highlight all the different cultures um, that make up this wonderful industry that we all serve, you know, in the hospitality industry. And, you know, we thank you so much for being open, sharing your story, um, educating us, you know, giving us this fantastic book. We look forward to seeing all the work that you've started and continue to do in your book and your article from Punch. And, um, you know, we are here to support you and um, and we don't want you to be the only one having these conversations. And I know I'm committed to having this conversation and, and bringing awareness. Um, but thank you so much for joining us today on Served Up. I think there's just one last thing that I'm going to add is if you are Indigenous, find me on Instagram. I'm looking for you. <laughs> yes, please do. Out. There's a bunch of us and the more of us that there are, the more we can do for each other. Absolutely. The better it will be. Yes. Well, Chucky, thank you so much. Um, I too am committed. Anything that we can do here at Served Up. Would love to have you back again to see how you're progressing through all your projects. Oh my gosh, you've got so much on your plate. Um, it makes me happy. Yeah, yeah, it's all good stuff. Um, but just thank you so much and just want to wish you um, a lot of great health during this still weird time that we're living in and a whole lot of peace. So just cheers to you. Oh, thank you. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers! <laughs>